we uh, begin, I am uh, in the, the introduction part of the Gospel of Mark, just laying down some of the foundations before we actually get into the text. And I just want to remind you today, I'm going to be slipping out a little quickly this morning. Uh, I do have a wedding that I'm performing up in uh, Fort Lee, uh, which is about an hour and ten minutes from here. I was at the rehearsal last night, so uh, and it's at three o'clock. So I have to get there, and um, we have a lot to do. So just uh, Christina and Joe, Christina Chow and Joe Ho are getting married this morning, and so Greg is up there uh, also with him and stayed up there. And so it should be a, a nice day today for them. Just pray for them if you're not going to be part of that and just uh, that everything will go smoothly. All right, let's, uh, we're going to be looking, get your Bibles ready. We're going to be looking at passages in, um, in of course, Mark and then also in Isaiah uh, and then uh, maybe a few other places. But let's have a word of prayer before I look at this introduction. Lord, thank you again for the privilege to have the Word of God in our hand. Thank you, Lord, that we're able to open it up, we're able to read it, we're able to study it, and hear it, talk about it freely. And I pray, Lord, you would continue to give us those freedoms. And I pray we'd never take for granted of them, but use them wisely and seize the time to grow in Christ, to grow in our knowledge. For we may live in a day that those times will end. I just pray, Lord, you would help us to be faithful to know the Word of God. And I pray, Lord, you would transform us into the image of Christ as you desire to do, and it is your will. So I I pray, Lord, prepare us for your presence. And most of all, Father, please give us a greater and a clearer understanding of Christ as we study this gospel, that we would know more about him and that we would learn to come and worship and praise him more than ever and live for him from the bottom and depth of our heart. So bless our time now as we look at the, some of the foundational things to consider before we even look at the text. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, I left you last week with three reasons Mark is a book of supreme importance. The first reason was it is the earliest of all the Gospels. It was written just shortly after Peter's death. And it was written, remembered, when Nero began the persecution of Christians. And the Christians were, were actually were driven down into the catacombs because there was no other place to actually uh, worship at that time. And so that becomes important for the persecuted church to get this very concise gospel and give it to them so they can be encouraged in their persecution. A second reason why is because it embodies the record of what Peter preached and taught about Jesus. The Gospel of Mark is the nearest approach uh, we will ever possess to, to be an, have an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus Christ. Remember, Mark writes in a way where he puts you right there in the scene. You feel like you're there. And that's how he's writing this gospel. Because he wants to give whoever reads it a sense that you were there experiencing what the apostles experienced. And so he, he doesn't uh, go off on a lot of things. He keeps it very, very simple and concise. A third 
reason was Mark's aim was to give a picture of Jesus as he was. Of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. He tells facts about Jesus' life in the simplest and the most dramatic way. And he never forgets the divine side of Jesus. And no gospel gives such a human picture of Jesus. So Mark invokes a wonderment and an astonishment uh, and an awe about Jesus Christ. And he he begins to display that in this particular gospel. Now, I recently, uh, the recently, uh, the recently inaugurated uh, chancellor and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary, Dr. Legan Duncan, said in his one of his addresses: "In today's world, we increasingly face the pressure of waking up day after day, breathing a looming toxic, toxic." poisonous air of unbelief all around us. It just seems to be something that is all everywhere today. And so he, re- he said that that requires us to put our feet on the floor and believing deliberately and to have a foundation that sustains our belief. Of course, maintaining a high view of Scripture and a commitment to the verbal inspiration and the inerrancy of the Word of God as the final authority will enable us to actually sustain our belief. It will keep us from straying away. Confusion does abound today about who Jesus is. All you got to do is go to the mall ministry and you'll find that people don't even know who He is. And if they do connect Jesus to anything, it has nothing to do with the Bible. And so it's, we've gotten far away from a biblical understanding of the most important person of all history, and that is Jesus Christ. So that's why today there remains a profound need for God's people to take a fresh look at the person of Jesus and the purpose of his life on earth as found in the text of Scripture. So then, the Gospel of Mark is a reliable witness of the astounding person and the transforming mission of Jesus Christ in the context of the inbreaking eternal rule of God on the earth. Because remember, when Jesus came, he said to the people, the kingdom of God has come. And meaning that if the king's there, then the kingdom's there. And so Jesus gives that sense. Now, there will be two essential questions that come up in the Gospel of Mark, which I mentioned last week. And of course, remember, Mark is very much needed for our times. This first century account of the person of Jesus is just as radical today as it was among the first Jews in first century Palestine. Radical for this reason, because the Gospel of Mark pushes against the preconceived expectations of the Messiah in their day. In other words, they got it wrong. They expected all kinds of things that had nothing to do with a Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. So there's always a danger of misrepresenting the truth about Jesus and the essence of real, genuine, biblical faith. Now, the questions 
that I mentioned last time that we're, we find in the Gospel of Mark is it reverberates throughout the account of Mark with passages like this. And they became afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this person? And then when Jesus was questioning his disciples uh, when he was heading to the village in Philippi, said, questioned them and says, listen, who do, who, who do people say that I am? And the disciples said back to Jesus, listen, some people say that you're John the Baptist, come alive. Some people say that you're Elijah or one of the other prophets. And so Jesus began to press his disciples and says, well, who do you say that I am? So see, Peter, of course, answered and said to him, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Remember the Greek word for Christ is the Hebrew word for Messiah, all right? Jesus is the Messiah, the one who's going to come and deliver. Of course, this time he's going to deliver from sinners, from sin, from the condemnation of sin, from the wrath of God. That's what he's going to do. But uh, so Peter didn't really come up with that on his own. The, that was given to him by the Father at that particular moment in time. Matter of fact, it took a while for Peter to even understand what he said that particular day uh, when he spoke back to Christ. So Jesus is asking relevant truth questions to move his disciples beyond pre preconceived notions uh, who he was supposed to be. And so these questions are not only for first century disciples, these questions are for today's disciples. All right, and the two questions, in fact, it becomes apparent as Jesus calls disciples to follow him, the two questions will be, who do you perceive yourself to be? Who are you? And then, who do you perceive God to be? Because those are two very important questions. If you don't see yourself as a sinner in need of God's salvation, then you'll get God wrong too. Because you'll come up with your own means of salvation, your own philosophy of living, your own religious system, your own idolatry. You will do that. Everybody does that. We are born to worship. We are born to plan for the future. We are born for something out there. And yet, we come up with conclusions that cannot save ourselves. The only one who could save us is the person of Jesus Christ. So see, Jesus calls for a radical assessment of self-perception. He calls for a radical assessment of God-perception. And he does it in order to lead us to a reconciled relationship with the true God. To lead us to understand ourselves. To lead us to understand and be able to have relationships with other people in a proper way. This reconciled relationship with God is the essential foundation for a transformed person, a transformed character, and a transformed life. So the final outcome of Christ's call to discipleship is a God-dependent, Christ-like individual and communities maturing in the context of the unending rule of God, that Jesus Christ is my master and he's my king, 
and I live within his kingdom and obey him. All right, so those thoughts are in the writers of the Gospels, and especially in the Gospel of Mark. Now, considering that, how does Mark use the word gospel? If you look right there in chapter 1, you'll see in verse number 1, it says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Interesting, his introduction there, I won't look at that right now, but the gospel, all right, is the, really the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. So the term gospel was equated to good news, but in the Greco-Roman mind or world, it conveyed the understanding of an imperial proclamation. In other words, it was a commander saying to his troops, he has a military victory. That was good news. In fact, that's the way it's used in the Old Testament. When David was waiting uh, back in the rear, when his troops were coming back, they would have runners. And the runners at, would watch the battle, and soon as the commanders say, the battle's done, we won the victory, the runners would take off, and they would run to the king. And so David is waiting for one of the runners in Samuel, and he says, the, this is what it says, the watchman said, the watchman who's watching the battle, and the watchman who's watching for the runners, says, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. He was a runner for the king. And he says, and the king said, this is King David, this is a good man. He comes with good news. All right, so that's how it was used in the Old Testament. It was the news of victory in battle. So that's in their mind. So David's waiting to hear this news of battle. In other words, Mark claims to present a biographical sketch of a hero containing descriptions of events and messages that contain good news. So this person comes in and they come with good news. However, the Gospel of Mark is not a biography in the modern sense of the term, it is a historical narrative concerning the person, the work of Jesus Christ as the good news of salvation. Now, if you look down at verse 14 of chapter 1, you'll notice this. It says, And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel all right, of God, and notice verse 15, and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God, God is at hand, repent, and what? Believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news about the coming victory. Right? And the coming victory is wrapped up completely and totally in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you look over to Mark chapter 8, in verse number 35, again it is used there, and it's used... In this context, it says for who, in verse number 35 of chapter 8, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. And whoever loses his life for the sake of the Gospels, for my sake and the Gospels, shall save it. Now, of course, that becomes radical type of language there. We don't get that. But in that day it was because there's a very odd Thing presented in the Gospels, in the canonical Gospels, 
And it's the way the main character obtains a military victory. In this case, it is the notion of the goal of the main character to die. The main character never dies. The main character always lives, right? He always conquers. But in this, that's why you're going to find the confusion in the religious leaders in Mark. You're going to find the confusion in the, in the disciples because they're expecting someone to take over Rome, to overthrow the government, and establish the kingdom. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for a military commander who comes with victory. They never expected that the victory would come by someone dying. By someone not only dying, but dying a shameful form of execution by crucifixion. Nobody expected it in that day. And so everybody got thrown off guard. So the death of the hero becomes a liberating, reconciling effect in the Gospel of Mark and all the Gospels. It's, it's by his death that anyone could be saved. So Mark is a report of what was done and how it was done and an analysis of what was done by Jesus Christ. So Mark seeks to present Jesus as a teacher and master with great power in the first part of the Gospel. And then in the second part, you're going to see more of Jesus being severely tested to the point of death as the Messiah. So the two questions of who is this Jesus and what are his intentions are made clear only by the crucifixion and then by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, now, if, you look, if you're in chapter 8 there, look at chapter 9 and verse number 9, all right? Notice what he, how he says it there. He says, as they were coming down from the mountain. This is the mountain after the transfiguration, which is a very pinnacle section in Mark. He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So Jesus is saying to these uh, disciples, listen, I really don't want you to say anything till the resurrection. So really, you see more clarity coming in after Jesus rises from the dead than at any other point. So you see uh, his disciples being confused, uh, the religious leaders being in opposition to Jesus and all kinds of things like that happening. And the tension, you could feel the tension in the gospel. And yet there's an attraction to Jesus Christ. And then there's, there's something repelling about the influence of Jesus Christ. And those things are presented in the gospel. The influence of the, the servant Jesus and his ministry definitely had an element of attraction. That Mark, uh, Mark's purpose was not merely to tell the story of a matchless religious teacher, but to proclaim Jesus Christ as the saving event announced by the Hebrew prophets. That was his goal, and his purpose was basically evangelistic. To win converts to the Christian faith. To win converts to Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ fully merited being accepted and served as Savior and Lord. However, Jesus ministered in the shadow of unbelief and open hostility. Jesus was misunderstood. 
He was attacked. He was rejected by the very people he came to serve and save. He was rejected by them. And you know what? If we were there, we would reject him too. If we were there, we would be in opposition too. If we were there, we would be confused also. See, we were there, and that's Mark's point. If you read the Gospel of Mark, you were there. And when you get that, you get a sense of who Jesus is. And so the reason for this misunderstanding was that Jesus did not fulfill the religious and the political expectations concerning the Messiah, which, of course, centered in on his anticipated glorious rule over the world. The the religious establishment totally missed it. They totally missed the Messiah's saving, spiritual saving ministry and his identity as the Son of Man of the the coming suffering uh, servant and his death. So Jesus therefore avoided using the term Messiah. He didn't use the term Messiah in reference to himself. Instead, he spoke of himself as the Son of Man. Now, if I went around this room and I says, well, what does the Son of Man mean? Uh, Do you know? I'm not asking you to answer that question. I'm just asking you to think about it. Because it's a term that we often read in Scripture, but it's a term that often we don't understand. So Jesus avoided using the word Messiah, at least initially, and he replaced it with this Old Testament use of this phrase, son of man, the one who's coming to suffer and die. This term son of man has really a half-concealed and a half-revealed connotation in its identity of the Messiah. So the reason why is because Jesus is ministering in the context of substantial misunderstanding and constant conflict of messianic expectations that were wrong. So see, he didn't want to add to that until it became clear before his disciples about what the messianic office was all about. So his redemptive mission was inseparably connected with his death and resurrection, declared in Mark also in chapter 10, which reveals a clear purpose of his mission. And I mentioned that a very popular passage of Scripture, Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life is a ransom for many. So that this giving of his life totally threw everyone off. And because of that, some have come up with a theory that Jesus was keeping a messianic secret. All right? He was trying to withhold his identity. And in, that, in, some case, in, in the case of Mark, that is true. Until it was the right moment to display his identity in the proper way before the people. So the disciples, as well as Palestinian Judaism, did not understand God's Messiah. So Jesus repeatedly taught his disciples because of their lack of understanding, uh, not on, of course, his part, but on their part. And so th- he begins to explain to them. Now, look at your Bibles in, John, in the, excuse me, Mark chapter 8 
And look down at verse number 32. Let me just give you some of these passages. Or verse number 30. He says this, and in Mark chapter 8.30, And he warned them to tell no one about him in 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, look at verse 32 in chapter 8. He was stating the matter plainly. It's as plain as the nose on your face. It says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. That's a pretty severe rebuke. But what was he doing? And why did he rebuke Peter so severely? Because severely, because Peter bought into the wrong understanding of Messiah. He brought into the political and to the religious of the day and not to what Jesus, who Jesus really was and what he came to do. In other words, Peter was saying to Jesus, no, you don't have to do that. You can establish the kingdom right now. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. What's this stuff about death and, and uh, you know, suffering and being beat and all this stuff? What's all that stuff? And Jesus rebukes him because, see, that's the message Satan wants people to believe that God doesn't have to die for sinners that God there's other ways to go to heaven and that you don't have to come through Jesus the son who died in the place of sinners and who defeated Satan and death on the cross you can come any way you want just make it up and come because God will accept anyone wrong Jesus severely rebukes Peter to have any kind of worldly thought about what the Messiah actually would come to do. In fact, again, in, if you turn over to Mark chapter 9, verse 31 and 32, again he says, and he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has, he has been killed, he will... Rise three days later, verse 32. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They didn't understand. Now, Jesus knew that, and Jesus is the master teacher, so he is very patient with his disciples, and he knows the timing's not right. They will get it. They, were, they will go on to write the Gospels when he's gone. They will all put it all together. But at this particular point, they didn't understand all right, and then another passage, look at chapter 10 of Mark, in verse number 32, 10:32, and they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful, and again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. In verse 33, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered into the chief pri- to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later they will ri- he, he will rise again. Again, they did not grasp what he was saying. So there's the clash between 
the perspective of suffering and the highly exalted Messiah of God and the political messianic expectation in the first century Palestine Judaism necessitated Jesus' injunctions to silence those who got the correct information yet didn't understand it. Because if you don't understand something, how can you communicate it? So they weren't even ready to communicate it. Don't tell anybody yet. You don't understand it yourself. All right, so Jesus was restricting it. And some people have come up with the thought that Jesus, there was a messianic secret, all right, and that he was telling them not to let anybody know. Matter of fact, if you turn back to Mark chapter 5 and verse 43, It says, and he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat after he was doing certain uh, miracles. And then, again, in chapter 7, verse 36, you don't have to turn there. It says he gave them orders not to tell anybody. And then in Mark, again, chapter 8, he says, and he warned them to tell no one about him. Even when the demons who knew who he was began to say this is the Son of God and they began to give his identity, he rebuked them and often told them to be silent. And so Jesus is withholding his identity. And there's one area that changes everything. And of course, that's going to be the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus stood on the mountain, uh, of transfiguration and his the bible says that he was transfigured before them and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them and then of course the disciples uh saw elijah and moses there and peter says listen i want to build uh some tabernacles and of course everything went silent and a voice came down from heaven and said this is my beloved son listen to him and all at once they looked around and saw no one except Jesus. And then it says, and as they were coming down the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So it's this very pinnacle point of the resurrection that the disciples begin to see crystal clear what he was talking about. And at that point, they would be enabled by God to now take the gospel and the truth about Jesus Christ to others in a way that becomes, of course, plain and clear. So this pivotal point in the ministry of the Son of Man, it's that Jesus displayed himself as more than a man. Now he's beginning to look like the Messiah. So in view of the fact that our Lord's own conception of the Messiahship was radically different from that which a public at that time used the term would suggest to the people, and it is understandable that his own explicit claims of Messiahship were different than the political and the religious claims. And so when he pulled his disciples aside, or he mentioned things publicly, it was often indirectly and with a certain amount of reserve because it wasn't time yet. Now, 
That means I like to probe a little bit about this term, son of man, in Scripture, because this term is very important, because it's the term that Jesus used instead of using the term for Messiah. And so how is it used? How do we understand this term? And so remember, I'm laying out our introduction in Mark, so when we come to the terms son of man, son of God, we will begin to say, ah, I know what that means. I know how it was used over here and over there. And this is, so Luke, I mean, excuse me, Mark is going to use son of man in three different ways. And so you're going to see it as we go along. Now, so the term son of man in all the gospels is used 72 times. And son of man is the unique way Jesus referred to himself. Three distinct, but uh, actually distinct, but related ideas can be connected to the phrase as used by Jesus. And the first one is simply this. Jesus often used the term son of man to uh, to refer to his humble human state. All right? That he was a humble human being. And sometimes that's how it's used. It's not explained. It's just used that way in the context. A second way it's used, and a very important way it is used, is uh, to mention that Jesus is a suffering servant. Now, I've already mentioned that Jesus would give his life a ransom for many. So he's going to suffer. He's been telling his disciples he's going to suffer. But where did the suffering servant mindset come from? Jesus is always going to be pulling from the Old Testament. Remember, there was no New Testament yet. So, if you take your Bibles and turn to a very familiar Old Testament passage, Isaiah 53, you will find there the concept of a suffering servant becomes very clear. Jesus is pulling it from there. In fact, we see an allusion to the suffering of Yahweh, the suffering of the Lord. In Isaiah 53, notice in verse number 10, it says, But the Lord... It says, was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In verse 11, and as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one. And notice, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And then in verse 12, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Now that's talking about a a victor now in this passage. In one passage is talking about a suffering servant. In the next passage is talking about a victor who's dividing the spoils. All right, And then notice what it says. Why does he divide the spoils? Why does he win the victory? Because, in verse 12, he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So here's a picture of Jesus is pulling from this suffering servant in the Old Testament and applying himself with the equation, son of man. All right? This son of man who suffers for sinners in the place of sinners, so they can be saved. All right, now, the first one, being a humble man, and the second one, being a suffering servant, would still keep Jesus on the level of the human. 
all right, you did those things. But, again, Son of Man is used a third way in the Gospel of Mark. And I want you to notice in the way it is used. In fact, it, he's drawing from an Old Testament passage. Again, the, prophets, the, the, the uh, prophet Daniel in chapter 7. And he uses the term Son of Man in an, uh, an apocalyptic context, in an end-time context, based on the prophet Daniel in that particular passage of Scripture in verse 13 and 14, we see an exalted king with tremendous amount of authority, and yet he is called the Son of Man who comes before the Ancient of Days. Of course, the Ancient of Days being a picture of the Father. So the Son comes before the Father, right? And it says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and he, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is a one which will not be destroyed. All right, so it's one like the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days. So Jesus is also pictures in a victorious, authoritative King Messiah role, but uses the term Son of Man. Now, let me show you in Mark where he does it. In Mark chapter 2, in verse number 10, where do we see the Son of Man displayed? In a veiled way, but yet with power? Well, in Mark chapter 2, what does Jesus do here in verse number 10? It says, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. All right, what is he saying there? And what do the people conclude? Only God has the authority to forgive sins. Correct. Correct. So the Son of Man is used here as one who has authority on earth to forgive sins. And not only that, to heal, completely heal, complete healing. So he shows and displays how Daniel used Son of Man in that way. And then again in Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28, it says, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord. Wait a minute. Even of the Sabbath. He uses now the term designated for Messiah. And that he would be the Lord, the master over everything. And so, again, these particular statements by Jesus infuriated the religious authority, which infuriated the political authority, because when the religious authority got agitated, the political authority had to deal with it, and then they got agitated at them. And then we have this turmoil because of these statements that Jesus is making that's making people go nuts. 
Who is this guy? See, that's why they ask the question, who is he? Is he man? Is he God? Is he God and man? Who is he? Is he a fake? Is he an imposter? Who's Jesus Christ? See, that's the question we all have to answer. Who is he? And then he really acts as the Messiah in Mark chapter 13. And I want you to turn to this one if you haven't turned yet. In verse 26 and 27. Well, look at Mark chapter, before you turn there, go to Mark chapter 8 verse 38 first. And then we'll go to Mark 13. In Mark chapter 8 verse 38, this is what we see. We see Jesus using the term son of man, but he's using it as a judge of mankind. What it says in verse number 38 of chapter 8, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Who is he? Who is Jesus? And then in Mark chapter 13, verse 26 and 27, it says, And then... It says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds and from the farthest ends of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Who's doing this? Jesus is doing this, but Jesus is doing this not as a man. In particular, he's doing it as God. So see, these statements are infuriating to people because he's claiming as a man to be God. And you know what? That's who he was. So we get, we get a, a clearer and a better pers- perspective of who Jesus is. So when you go through the gospel, you're going to find this that the audience is split into two groups. Either you're going to follow him or you're going to be his opponent. Or you're going to be his opponent for a while until you're convinced of who he is and then you'll be his follower. Maybe the second part is where we all fit in. Because we have to see it, we have to know it, we have to have information about it so we can actually follow Jesus. So see, Jesus' relationship with his disciples is reached when he singles out a distinct group of 12 men who are to form his inner circle, and he begins to prepare them to spread the message of the gospel, to exercise demons, and to be his example on this earth in his word and in their deed. And that's what he does. And Mark brings that up. But then, see, the growth of this new messianic rule in the world amongst his disciples continues to get displayed and show the expanding range of power that Jesus has. And where do we see that? We see it when Jesus has power over the forces of nature in Mark chapter 4. When Jesus has power over the demonic world in Mark chapter 5, when Jesus has power over human illness and death, in Mark 
chapter 5 also, when Jesus has power to multiply food to feed thousands of people, when Jesus has power over gravity to walk on water. See, he displays to them. And so as they're convinced about who he is, they become his followers. But also, those who are opposed to him, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Herodians, See, they pursue a policy of, per, uh, of really persevering their own political and economic and religious power. They don't want to let go of that. They don't want to give it to anyone else. So they're protecting that. Judas, one of the twelve, will oppose Jesus on account of his own openness to Satan and his disappointment over Jesus not being the victorious military uh, victor and overthrowing Rome right away. He was disappointed in Jesus. Also, we see that Peter will deny Jesus in order to preserve his own life. Three times he will deny him. And that's brought out very clearly. And then, of course, there's the opposition of his own family when he goes back to his own hometown and he begins to preach and do some miracles there. It says in the Scripture, and he came to his own people, all right, and... They said, this man has lost his senses. Because they knew who Jesus was growing up. And they, he's, this guy's claiming to be, who is this guy? Right? And then finally the spiritual le- uh, leadership accuses Jesus of casting out demons by the power of demons. That they, can, they actually accused him of po- being possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. All right? And of course... What happens in that particular case is that Jesus in turn turns to them and accuses them of blaspheming being the Holy Spirit because they were attributing to Jesus satanic power and they were totally wrong. So see, either you and I are going to follow on the side of the followers and disciples of Jesus or we are going to follow on the sides of the opposers of Jesus. And I tell you what, if you're saying no to Jesus right now, if you have never become a Christian and believed in Jesus Christ and confessed him as your Lord and Savior, you are on the opposition side. And you will remain there until you become a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. There is no gray and middle ground when it comes to Jesus Christ. Either you are in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. Either you are a child of the king or you're a child of Satan. You cannot be other, there's no other place to go. So see, Jesus' mission becomes very crystallized and focused when we get that. That in Mark's account, there is a focus on taking sides either with Jesus' disciples or in opposition to Jesus. And the ultimate purpose of Mark is to present legitimize and describe Jesus' universal and authoritative call to discipleship. And discipleship in Mark is essentially a function of the eminence of the the master's person, Jesus' person, his deeds, his teaching, and the impact it had. Discipleship, discipleship is not primarily a matter of pursuing certain a certain code of conduct. Fellowship with Jesus includes dependence upon his atonement 
his death. It includes the transformation of the person that they would act differently when they come to Jesus. It includes a mark in their conduct and a change in their heart that would result in them being disciples of Jesus Christ. Because when people became followers of Christ and the followers of Christ would go into certain areas, people would say, they're followers of Christ. How do they know that? Because there were certain characteristics about them. Even when Peter denied Jesus, the people around the fire said, he's one of them. So they were identifying him as a disciple even though he was opposing Jesus at that time. So all this stuff is going on, but it's going on for a very specific, specific pur- purpose because the Gospel of Mark wants to put us there and put us in front of Jesus so we can ask the most two fundamental questions. Who are you and who is this Jesus? And are you one who has opposed him or are you one who is one of his followers and disciples? Where are you? See, those are going to be very clear. And matter of fact, the most important questions that you'll ever answer on this side of eternity. Because you can take those questions and die with them and know where you're going. So, I think I've given you enough in the introductory material to launch you into the narrative, into Jesus' life and ministry, so you can answer those two essential questions. Who do you perceive yourself to be, and who do you perceive God to be? And you will hear Jesus call you to follow him and to be his disciple And, of course, I say this, buckle up, because the ride at times is pretty bumpy. But have no fear, Jesus is the pilot. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again, Lord, for just a tremendous truth that you have given us in our hands concerning who you are and who we are, and how important it is to follow you and serve you. I pray, Lord, that there's no one who begins to read your word and begins to think seriously about what's being said about you in in even a gospel like Mark, to ever be confused about who you are and what you have done and who they are and what you have done in their place as a sinner And that you are the one who can pay their price, satisfy the justice of the Father, and make them right with God so they too can come into the kingdom of God. I pray, Lord, through your gospel that you would establish real disciples, real followers. And Lord, even those who have opposed and withstood and stand in unbelief would have their minds changed also. And that you would bring them unto yourself. For we know, Lord, that's why you came, to seek and to save that which is lost. And that was us. So thank you again, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.